I'm a doctor of economics. I deal with sick economies rather than sick people. Many governments want to introduce sovereign crypto. But inflation is dead and we never have to look at that again. It's over. Anybody in politics knows that those parts of the country are going to vote Democrat no matter what. I think it's a containable problem. It's an addressable problem. This has radically changed everything. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? from markets to mortgages, from policy to politics, and everything in between. Please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. In the first of my conversations, I'm joined by former advisor to the Bush White House, Pippa Malmgren. Pippa is a rare treat, a brilliantly accomplished thinker, entrepreneur, and author who just happens to be one of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. Pippa and I first met five years ago at the bottom of a long staircase. We started talking, and we've barely paused for breath ever since. In those five years, while I've been noodling around, she's written best-selling books, founded H Robotics, a state-of-the-art drone company, and been an advisor to a series of governments. So please welcome my friend, Dr. Pippa Malgren. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for organizing this. Oh, and hello, thanks. everybody. You, I think we have are, quite a crowd. You are for the first time stuck in London, which is great. Right? No more globetrotting for you for a while. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and isn't it funny that here we are all stopped our tracks, but all the work that we've all done for so many years traveling means that we're all interconnected. So I'm... I'm talking to people all over the world, probably at a faster pace than I used to. Uh, and Zoom is doing very well by me. Um, so, yeah. you know, technology. <laughs> yeah, you, me, and the rest of the world, by the look of things, Zoom is doing extraordinarily well. Um, for anybody asking uh, if there's going to be a replay of this, there will be a replay available. Um, and I'll post that as soon as I can after we finish chatting. Now, Pip, the, um, the, the main thing that I really want to talk about was what you and I spoke about the other day, this, this idea about a possible RTC to solve these problems because it was something you and I chatted about a few weeks ago and I was kind of mulling it over and I didn't really see how it was going to work. But the more we spoke about it the other day, the clearer it became to me is just how potentially stupendous an idea it might be. So what I'd love you to do is take all the time you need and just, just talk to people about that idea, um, that, that, that perhaps the history of the RTC back in the, the late 80s, early 90s with the savings and loan crisis so people can understand the background and how it might be applied sure. today. Sure. And amazingly, since you scheduled this call, uh, I've actually just been asked in the last 48 hours uh, by two governments to write a memo explaining uh, because they're starting to think about this as well. 
So here's the bottom line. Uh, back when we had the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s, which is probably too long ago for some people on the call to remember, uh, we suddenly had a lot of broken assets in the system. Now, it didn't matter so much exactly how it happened, but we had a whole bunch of banks that had very bad uh, loans and very bad assets on their balance sheet. And they had this happen all at once. And so it was decided to create a clearing mechanism for these broken assets. And we call that uh, the Resolution Trust Corporation. So uh, this was just in the US, legislation was passed. Uh, it says, Papa, you're getting interference on your microphone. Hang on, maybe it's my hair, there we go. Uh, so we decided to create uh, uh, an organization that would take these broken assets, actually compel the banks to move these assets off their balance sheet and into this structure. Uh, because basically there were so many of them, there were so many golf courses and hotels and restaurants and regular businesses uh, that there was no way for the buyers and sellers to meet and change hands. And also the atmosphere at the time was very pessimistic. Uh, so people were afraid, there was no confidence. So putting it really simply, uh, this organization was created. Uh, the banks were mandated that they had to place uh, anything that was performing board below a certain level in that organization. These assets, whether they were golf courses or restaurants or hotels or um, not so much mortgage-backed securities at the time, but you could do it with that as well, were then wrapped in a 30-year government bond. And now government sold that bond to the market. And at the time, there was a demand for that, similar to what I think would happen today. And the underlying assets were then basically handed to about 10,000 volunteers. Uh, there were people who were ex-accountants, bankers, financial experts who all volunteered to come in and have a look at this sort of butcher's bin of, of this rag bag lot of completely different sorts of assets and to try to package them into something that could be auctioned. And then it was indeed auctioned, not just to the banking system, but to the general public. And so suddenly somebody who knew how to run a hotel could actually buy that hotel for about five cents on the dollar. Now, that was a very successful program. Uh, and it cleared decks of debt at the time to such an extent that it set the foundation for what then later became known as, uh, well, let's say it ended you know, a while later in what was known as the dot-com bubble, but basically cleared the decks for investment again. And investors were able to profit from these very cheap assets and having them in the hands of people who knew how to really operate them and it increased confidence, and a lot of money at that point went into what was at the moment, at that time, popular, which was technology. But the point is investment came back in a way that it hadn't for a long time. And so next thing you know, asset prices went up, and then we got on to our, our next crisis after that, the dot-com bubble bursting. But at any rate, it's one way of cleaning up a mess. Now, the problem today is that um, government officials, and I have long experience of working with government officials in various governments around the world, 
And generally speaking, they don't actually understand how the economy works in the same way that market people don't understand how government works. But they believe that the economy is just like uh, an alarm clock and it goes off and you can hit the snooze button and then it'll just wake you up an hour later and everything will be fine. And the reality is that once you turn the economy off, and I know it's turned off to different degrees in different locations, but uh, once you turn an economy off and it's really in lockdown, things start to break. And you can't just turn it back on when you turn it off. So this belief is starting to break. This belief that I can just turn it back on and everything will be right where I left it is starting to be a question mark. So what I'm arguing is, well, not only will it not turn back on, but a whole lot of stuff is going to be broken in this process because we had such an epic amount of debt. It, I, not to go too far with the analogy, but it's a little bit like the coronavirus itself, right? The people who have underlying health conditions have been uh, shown to be vastly more vulnerable. Uh, so it's not the virus that kills you. It's the fact that you already had asthma. And then this throws you over the edge. Same way, the economy being burdened by so much debt and leverage is revealed to be in much worse shape than you realized. And the virus is the least of its difficulties. And so now the virus has exposed this fragility in the system. So one idea is, okay, we're going to have a whole lot of broken assets, restaurants that will have gone bust, uh, property companies, tech firms that were so close to doing great things all of a sudden won't make it to the finish line. So choice is you say, well, we're just going to have this pile up of broken assets. And when it happens, the market will figure out how to clear it and will, buyers will appear. Or you say, well, maybe not uh, because the volume will be so huge. And the level of uncertainty so high because we're dealing with this invisible force, um, both the virus and the debt, that we can't quite get a grip on how severe is it. And therefore, it will take time to find the buyers of, you know, the ovens that a restaurant has had to sell because they've gone under. And so bottom line is the, there's an orderly way to do it, and there's a disorderly way to do it. The disorderly way, you know, normally I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm American, I'm Republican, I'm a market person. I normally trust markets to clear assets. But when it happens so suddenly and in such a huge volume, it's so pervasive, maybe we're going to need a mechanism that causes that clearing process to happen faster. And the very last thing that I'll say, and then I'll stop and we'll, we'll go back to the conversation, is this is a one-off opportunity in history to write off a huge amount of debt that should have been written off long ago. But because the banks got a bailout, instead of using the bailout the way it was intended during the financial crisis, which was to hold open the window of opportunity to sell those broken assets, instead the banks all said, well, hey, I got free money. I'll just hang on to this stuff. And so we see a lot of things on bank balance sheets, but frankly also in the world of venture capital and private equity. Uh, that are fundamentally not performing. And let's just add to that how many governments have non-performing debt uh, one way or another. So couldn't we actually look at this as a great gift? This is a moment where we could compel institutions 
to write off debt that's performing below a certain level, then basically the stock market's already down, so the hit to the share price is far less severe than it would be otherwise. And um, they're financed with loads of cash from unlimited quantitative easing. We'll come back to that because I'm not sure they've done it in the smartest possible way. Uh, and basically push those broken assets out to the market at a fraction of their real value. That could be the recipe for an extraordinary recovery. Um, and I, I, I know, Grant, you tend to take a, a more pessimistic view of what's going to happen after this crisis ends, this health crisis, as we get into the economic crisis. I'm just saying I'd like to present this as one possibility of a way that we could foreshorten the time frame and limit the damage. But I agree that probability of serious damage is rising every single day. And every day the economy shut down, the harder it gets to turn it back on and the more broken assets you're going to have to contend with. So that's, in a nutshell, the idea. Well, okay. So we need to start going back and unpack all that because it's such, it's such a big idea. Um, and I'm used to getting those from you and they always spin my head around. And I normally have to go and sit in a quiet room for a few days and think about all the stuff you told me. <laughs> I don't have that luxury today. But um, let, let's go back to the, the compulsion to put the assets in these trusts, which is the first thing. You know, I think um, we've gotten so used to equity holders not taking haircuts, right? Everybody being safe, whether it's, whether it's the equity holders, the debt holders, everybody. Um, but from what you're saying, the only way to do that is going to be massive haircuts, if not complete wipeouts for the equity tranches of so many businesses, so many companies. Um, just walk me through how that works in practical terms, because obviously with, with so many people uh, at maximum equity allocation in their, in their pension plans, for example, you know, there, there, there's always competing forces against this. The idea, as you, as you put it, this, this generational opportunity to wipe out this debt, we all know this debt has to be wiped out at some point. We've, we've known that for a long time. So to have an opportunity here, I'm just trying to understand the mechanics of it on the side where the pain is going to be felt. So uh, let's start with what's our view about how much of a hit are the equity markets going to take anyway? Uh, so obviously there are lots of different views about this. And now that we've had the QE, uh, the stock market jumped back up again. But if you agree that the harder, the longer it is, the harder it is, the more loss of equity value is occurring anyway, then it becomes easier to swallow this idea that there will be a hit. Now it doesn't mean it's a total wipeout because you can, you can loosen the accounting, accounting rules, which frankly we do every darn time that we have a big crisis in the market. You loosen the accounting rules for the banks so that they can push those broken assets off their balance sheet, but not be dead, right? Not, they'll still be viable. They'll still be there. They've just had the opportunity to excise some of cancer that's been weighing, weighing down their balance sheet. So I'm not necessarily saying that a resolution trust requires 100% loss of the equity value of these institutions. I'm saying you can do it in such a way that you say, if an asset's performing below a certain level, you could push it over into this structure. And frankly, I think that as institutions started to do that, the market's smart enough these days that they would start to buy the equity back 
and appreciate which firms were being most aggressive about dealing with the debt and which ones were pretending that the problem wasn't there. Does that make sense? No, no it makes perfect sense. Uh, and actually, one of, um, one of uh, the attendees, John Goodrich, John, how are you? I hope you're all safe out there, has actually asked the same question that I asked you the other day, right, which is, which is exactly going back to the RTC and, and the claims that uh, obviously the fat gets get fatter and the only people able to buy these assets for pennies on the dollar are the people with access to capital. Um, so, so let's kind of think about that and, and get, we'll come back to the actual wrapping and, and the issuance of the bond shortly. But the, the assets, uh, seeing as John's raised a question and it's a good one, once you get to the auction process for these assets, um, Let's think through how that works, because when you're talking about being able to buy hotels for cents on the dollar, um, which is a fantastic thing to be able to do if you are uh, a hotelier who has no debt and can bring these properties back online free and clear of debt and, and build a business from the ground up. But in practicality, what tends to happen is people with access to massive amounts of capital go out and buy all the hotels and, you know, gear them up, level them up, and the same thing happens over again. Is there, is there a way to stop that happening, whether it's mandated as part of the RTC, as part of the auction details? How, how do you get around that problem? Yeah, and that did happen during the RTC period. Um, it, you could put it this way, that, you know, suddenly the, uh, the bankers took their suits off and um, put on their sort of homeless clothes and showed up at the auction looking like, you know, they were just a regular guy, but they were really institutions. That definitely did happen. But I think it would be a little easier to safeguard uh, against that now. And you could create certain rules about um, who's permitted in the auction process and up to what level. Um, I, I think the technology would make that easier now. But for sure, yeah, some clever people are definitely going to get in there first. In the same way that you know, when you had um, glasnost and perestroika and the whole Soviet economy was suddenly auctioned off, you ended up with a whole bunch of oligarchs because the general public didn't understand the value of those bits of paper uh, at the time. And, and the value of the cash in hand was greater than the little IOU bit of paper from the government. So, yes, this is, there's an education process around this for sure. But on the other hand... It's also true that um, you know, people who really understand the value of a particular app and, are, and it's made clear that they can participate in an auction and that really they're gonna start at the bidding at five cents on the dollar. I think there are a lot of real economy people who would be all in and they certainly were with the savings alone crisis. They were at that time and I think they would be now. So I think it's a containable problem. It's an addressable problem. I also suspect, I, I mentioned earlier, and someone's asked a question about um, uh, more than banks. Could we include more than banks? I think you could make this facility available to private equity funds, to venture capital funds, who are already very comfortable with the idea that they're going to lose money on nine out of 10 of their investments or maybe eight out of 10 of their investments and they're gonna only make money on one or two. Okay, well, if you really think that and now really the underperforming ones are seriously underperforming, you know, you were gonna write them off anyway. Why not write them off and put them in this structure and make it available 
to someone else to actually buy it back. So they might say, well, heck, I'll buy the hotel back that I already own at five cents on the dollar and get what will potentially be a tax break in between, in which case you limit how much private equity firms can purchase in this. You say you can have up to a certain amount, but not more than a certain amount. I, I think it's doable. Well, let's go back to the, the debt component of this, because I'm interested in that as well. Obviously, there's a tremendous appetite for so-called safe uh, debt. Um, how safe would these bonds be given the fact that the finances of the governments that are going to issue them are so much more mm. impaired now than they were back in, you know, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s? So you say that, but in the late 80s, early 90s, people thought they were outrageously impaired then. Um, you know, it's all relative. What's the level of impairment? Um, it's uh, in an emergency, you know, pension funds and insurance companies, they have to have asset liability matching. They have, if the they look at even sovereign wealth funds, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund the other day, basically, if the stock market falls enough, we have to buy bonds, right? It's built in to the remit. And which bonds are they going to buy? You know, I can, even, I can make the case that bonds from, I don't know, I haven't actually looked at this lately, but, uh, I, you know, a bond from Ghana might actually be more likely to pay out than a bond from a G7 country in Europe. I, I can make the mathematical case that we've got the whole scoring ranking system of bonds all wrong. And the fact that we think that, you know, France and America are, quote, safer bets might not be true. But we do believe this. And this is a sovereign privilege. And my guess is if the U.S. government starts uh, issuing these kinds of bonds, with everybody knowing that the purpose of the exercise is to allow the debt to be shifted, diminished, and the assets to be shifted into stronger hands at better prices, in other words, it would improve the performance of the economy going forward, that becomes a viable story. And, and, and that's why I think, by the way, as an aside, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, later, as an aside, one of the greatest dangers that I see building on the landscape now is something that um, I'm sure some people are going to laugh at, but it's inflation risk. And that inflation risk is that um, we've said free money at exactly the moment that we've lost all the downward pressure from, on prices from global supply chains and from cheap Chinese production. Uh, and, you know, a lot of technology isn't going to be here now to push down prices. So this is another thing to take into consideration that you might want to hurry up and clear out a lot of this debt in advance because you've set the stage potentially for inflation. And then that would interfere with buying of bonds. But the thing is, that takes time to build. So my recommendation is if you're going to do this, You've got to, and uh, yeah, someone's just reshoring also increased inflation. I agree. So if you're going to do this, you have to do it now. Like time has taken on a much more important uh, meaning in this environment. So speed right. will matter. This, this option isn't open-ended. So obviously there's all kinds of issues with territoriality. How do you, how do you, who owns the assets, right? If it's in a company, but it's in a country, 
it's cross-border. I mean, there's all kinds of things there they need to work through. But, but you know, everyone listening to this can, can you know, start to think about that stuff around. The one thing that, that you can perhaps talk to that, that no one else in this call perhaps can is how do you have this conversation at a government level? When you go in to have that conversation to people who, you know, by, by, by your own understanding, don't really understand how this works, how do, you, how do you think about putting it to them in a way that they'll understand just how short this time frame may be and how important an idea this is? Well, so it depends which government you're talking to. Uh, right now, we have a lot of variation in the thought processes going on. Um, in the UK, they, in my opinion, they're still behaving as if they're campaigning. And so all policy, and but to be fair, it was like this under Theresa May as well. So there, it's everything is tactical, nothing is strategic, and everything is about tomorrow's press conference, tomorrow's press conference. So their horizon is very foreshortened, uh, a bit like what we experienced in markets as well. We've all seen market people get very tight trading timeframes uh, and impossible to look out even two or three months, let alone two or three weeks in the last couple of years. So there's a, there's a bit of, uh, you have to understand that you're trying to lift their eyes up above the 24 hour horizon. That's the first thing you gotta do. Um, usually fear will help you do that. And so you gotta scare them and say, look, this is the reality. You're not right. You can't just turn this thing back on. And Grant, you know, of, of all people, I tend to be pretty optimistic about outcomes. I tend to believe that there's always a way out. There's always an economy tomorrow. Uh, but I did experience this back in 2007 when I was arguing around May 07 that we were about to have the mother of all catastrophes in the financial markets and people were not scared. Uh, they were not believing that. They were like, Peppa, you need a vacation. Uh, so it's a little like that. People are not aware enough of the potential downside. As a small piece of that, I'll give you an example. We just got the headline here in the UK, there's a possibility of rolling blackouts and brownouts because the power supply is being um, put at risk by the fact there's nobody operating the power stations. And why? Because they're all sent home because of the crisis. So this raises the very difficult, very politically incorrect question which is, is there a possibility that the cure for this crisis is going to cause more damage than the cause? I mean, it's a terrible question, but it's a question that has to be asked. The moment you see that it's really possible that you're going to get blackouts and brownouts, you're like, so everybody else um, who's on the ventilators that you're trying to save, okay, now they're pushed on to the um, generator that hopefully the hospital has, with the fuel that hopefully the hospital has organized, but they haven't organized the masks for the, for the workers, as you rightly say. Have they really double-checked that there's somebody on staff who knows how to operate a power generator? Maybe not. And by the way, when 9-11 happened, our number one thing we had to do in the White House was find a power generator to turn the power supply back on for the New York Stock Exchange because there wasn't one. And in the end, the team had to find one, which we found in Maryland, and we put it on a wide load truck and we drove it up to lower, to get it to the, the, um, the water side in lower Manhattan. And I mean, I can't tell you the rigmarole, I wrote about it in my book that was required to get a power generator to the New York Stock Exchange. 
So you think it's happened or think it's easy. You think it's already done. It's not already done. So now, okay, government, you're trying to save all these people and you've over this very fundamental point that the ventilators don't work unless you have power. And your power people are telling you you're going to go into rolling blackouts and brownouts. Are you responding to this? And so this is how you begin. And then the next thing is this argument is much easier because it's already happened. The Resolution Trust existed. It worked. We can look at that as a model. What's much harder is trying to invent a new solution to a new problem. That, that's almost impossible. And with the savings and loan crisis, it only happened because we had 700 thrift banks all go bust simultaneously. The magnitude was so huge, there was no other way to respond to it. So they invented a structure to be a market clearing mechanism. I'm just saying, do we have to keep being do we have to keep being behind all these problems? Do we have to keep being surprised that Brexit happened and not preparing in advance? Are we surprised that the virus arrived in the UK or the United States and we didn't prepare because we never thought it was coming? Why be surprised? You can see this coming and at least you could put together a skeleton structure so that if it turns out that maybe this is right, you've already got an idea of how you can rather more quickly clear the assets instead of waiting for the crash to happen and then looking at the pile of broken assets and shrugging your shoulders and everybody, I don't know. I don't know what we do next. Well, there's, there's a couple of things, more things that I want to just ask you about, and then I'm going to just take some of these questions because we've had so many coming in. But um, two things. One, inflation, which I think, let's, let's put that on hold for one second. But this also seems to be an opportunity for a state-backed digital currency to be rolled in as part of this. And I know you've thought about this a lot. So, so let's talk about this. Do you see that as playing a role in this? Because it, that will help in many ways to manage some of the, some of the kind of leaky parts at the edge of this. Definitely. So I've argued for a long time that many governments want to introduce sovereign crypto or sovereign digital. Uh, the Chinese have said this. The European Union has said this. Um, I know that many governments are working on this, and they love it for many reasons. One is uh, it's heroin for politicians. I mean, you just get to hand out free money everywhere because you can double or have the money supply with digital currency simply through a keystroke. I mean, it's, it's a much easier way to um, produce money, but it's also easier to target it. So, for but example, when doubling I doubling is much easier than halving, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much easier. <laughs> like, so, for example, when, when I was in the White House and we had 9 11 and we did the tax cut, um, the, I can't remember the original number, it was about $400 that was sent to every American family. Well, actually, getting it into people's bank accounts was quite a rigmarole, quite a tricky problem. And that's exactly what policymakers are finding today. They're saying, um, and I'm using Britain as an example because I'm here, but we can talk about other places like the US, but here they've, they've, done, they've been more aggressive and, and far further forward on this response curve. So they said, okay, we're gonna pay the wages of 80% uh, of all the wages so that you know, people will have cash. And, but it's done through a bank lending mechanism and the banks have said, 
well, I may have just received this unlimited quantitative easing. Thank you very much. I'm not lending to anybody. I'm not going to loosen my criteria. I'm not handing this out. So the government announces a, a, a policy assuming that the banks will take the free money and do what they're supposed to do, which is give it to these people who need it in the bank account. But no, the bank says, actually, nobody's at the bank to even take the phone call to process the application. So bottom line is digital money is much easier to deposit directly into a person's bank account. Uh, and you can talk because you can actually begin to look at data and you can say, well, I would like the deposit only to go to, and now I'll get dark, right? I'm gonna get very dark on you here. Now we're gonna enter the world of politics. Uh, I only want it to go to families that voted for my party and specifically those that voted for these three issues in the direction that I believe is right. I mean, like you can really target with digital money. And so that's another reason they like it. And the last reason they like it is because digital money becomes completely visible to government. And so they can see every single transaction. They can see how are you spending it, spending it, what are you spending it on? Uh, it's connected to the idea that uh, you're creating a tax infrastructure where you could deduct tax at the point of um, transaction rather than waiting for tax returns. And then governments want to move there anyway because the rest of the digital infrastructure facilitates that as well. And if people haven't read Yuval Hariri's um, editorial from about two weeks ago in the Financial Times, I put it up on Twitter, but I'll put it up again after our talk. It's a very worthwhile editorial because he talks about uh, the way that the digitization of the citizen becomes a very useful thing in a crisis like this, because now you can follow an individual and you can see somebody who tests positive exactly where they've been and who have they been in proximity of. But you're also opening the door potentially to a quite authoritarian state that now has insight into your life uh, to a degree never known before. And so we should think now about how we're gonna unroll this. You know, it shouldn't all go one way. So the digital currency is part of that too. And I am very aware of the potential damage to democracy and personal freedoms that what I'm suggesting could introduce. But frankly, we're already there anyway. This is what surveillance capitalism is all about. But the idea is that if banks won't conduct that money through to the end party, and the end party this time isn't the banking system, it's the citizen on Main Street, then they have to find another way. And the simplest way is this idea of a digital currency. Now, I, someone just put up a question about the unbanked. I wholly agree. And I had the unbanked as an issue when I was in the White House. And so it's worthwhile looking at what India did when they shifted uh, a billion people from paper money over to digital money, uh, which they did now about, what, 18 months ago, maybe two years ago. Uh, and that went remarkably smoothly. And even the unbanked were issued with cards that had value on them. Um, I'm not saying that this is without any problems, but if India can manage to shift its population where so many are unbanked, maybe there's a possibility that we'll manage this too. I suspect that these events are accelerating government's intentions to introduce digital currency, which by the way, will also begin to displace the private crypto. And this idea that, well, I'm hanging on to my Bitcoin or whatever the 
1,400 equivalents are that exist in the market today. Now we're in a world where when government comes in, they're not going to be so in favor of the existence of those other mechanisms. And they're going to demand more and more that they have visibility about private crypto. And anything that they can't, they will get more aggressive about curtailing it, in my judgment. Well, this, I mean, this is why I love talking to you, because every, I'm sure everyone listened to this, their heads are exploding with all this. And there's, no, and there's no way to answer it and think it all through. These are the things you have to go away and think about. Um, but, but what we've just talked about there brings me back to that last point that I want to ask you about before, before we open the floor up, and that's inflation. Because yeah. you know, everything that we're seeing happen now seems to be inflationary. The, you know, the helicopter money, the way that they're going to try and get this money to Main Street as quickly and as effectively as they can. So we're having a massive inrush of money into a population who have, many of them had their rent suspended, their mortgage payments suspended. You know, no one's going to be thrown at their homes in France. No one's allowed to go bankrupt. You know, all these things are happening. Um, the, 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 the problem with QE was obviously that, that the money went into risk assets, went into the system. This money seems to be set to go into the economy, and that is inflationary. There's, there's no other way to think about it. When, when you ponder this deflation-inflation uh, scenario that people have been kind of mulling over for some time, and, and we've had many people call the end of deflation and the onset of inflation wrongly, it seems to me that this is the kind of thin end of the wedge, and we, if we haven't turned, we're at the turning point. How do, you, how do you think of it, and what do you think an inflationary future looks like for everybody? Sure. Um, and as someone who's been banging on about inflation is higher than the data is telling you, um, I'm well familiar with the commonly held view that inflation is dead and we never have to look at that again. Uh, it's over as a phenomena. I deeply disagree. And I think that we already have experienced, because when you go from 1% inflation, which is about where we were when the financial crisis ended, to two and a half, which is where we ended up before this crisis began in the US. And everybody said, well, that's not very much, you know, that's okay. Okay, not for a pension fund. That is a totally dramatic change in your asset allocation. And not for a poor family. That's a huge shift. Uh, that's the difference between being able to buy protein and getting shifted into cheaper calories, which are always emptier calories and the onset of obesity crises where you have calories without nutrition. You know, these are real issues that were just caused by that little move from 1% to 2.5% uh, in the U.S. Other countries have had much more inflation. Uh, and we have been in a world where everybody's like, my kids are having to move back, in, back home because they can't afford rent. So this idea that there wasn't any inflation, I, I disagree with to begin with. But I'm, I absolutely take the point. People think that it's dead. Well, what killed it? Well, what killed it was global supply chains. What killed it is the Chinese public being willing to provide every core product ever more cheaply. Well, that ended not recently. That ended 10 years ago. And we've seen nothing but higher prices out of China in particular, much higher wages, much higher basic cost base. You know, Walmart was already saying, we just can't keep the prices down because there are no other marginal additional suppliers of, say, shoes 
that are cheaper than the Chinese. Uh, and in fact, I would argue what's happened in the last couple of years is this onshoring, reshoring has been very real because actually the U.S. could produce stuff more cheaply than China. And that, that's partly a function of the fact that the content of manufactured goods is less and less and less about the labor and more and more and more about the uh, process, you know, the, the highly digitized process for producing things. Uh, 3D printing and laser sintering, you know, this is the world that I'm in. I'm able to manufacture drones uh, of various kinds, aerial drones, terrain drones, marine drones, more cheaply here in the UK than I could make them in China. And people are like, that can't be true. And I'm like, well, I'm in it. And I'm telling you that it's true with higher quality controls. So coming back to the bottom line here, it is exactly when everyone thinks that something is dead, never a problem ever to be discussed again, that it comes back. And the fact that we don't even understand it, because we haven't even read the books about how it operates, uh, is worrying still. We should be now rereading what happens when inflations begin. And let's remember, the genie is out of this bottle now. The genie is not inflation. The genie is inflation expectations. And right now in London, people will be absolutely willing to pay a pound or a, a, a pounder, let's call it a dollar in the States for an egg. They'd be willing to pay a fiver for a loaf of bread. And okay, you could say these are special circumstances, but this is how it begins because inflation is a psychological phenomenon. It's a belief system. It's a belief that, you know what, I might not be able to get something tomorrow. And as more and more productive capacity of the economies are destroyed by the lockdown, the more you start to go, hmm, there might not be many supplies. I'll give you one little example, thermometers. So when this thing started, I was like, I'm a good mom because I have thermometers. And then I went to the cupboard and pulled them out. And I'm like, oh, darn, I totally forgot. They're all bloody digital. And so and nobody's been sick in my house. My teenager hasn't been sick for like five years. We haven't needed the thermometer. And I forgot. Oh, the batteries have all run down. I'm like, do I have an analog, you know, mercury thermometer? No, nobody has one anymore. They're all digital. So can I get a thermometer that's mercury? Every thermometer in the city is sold out. You can't find one in London. You can't get one in London. I was very lucky I could get the batteries, the very specific narrow type of batteries that are required. So suddenly, am I going to go buy an analog thermometer next time I have a chance? Yes. And why am I doing it? Because I have an inflation expectation in my mind. I have a belief in my mind. They're limited, and I should grab one when it comes back. This is how inflations begin. And so that's why it's important to study it a little bit and look for signs that it might be happening and to think, what are the new forces that will push down prices? And if you can't think of any, then that matters. Well, look, first of all, you do realize that in the same sentence there, you use the words fiver, cupboard, and bloody. So you've obviously been in England way too long. I'm so <laughs> anglicized. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's an interesting question here that, that I mean, essentially is the question I was going to follow up with, and that's Brian Smith asking, how is this inflationary? Um, government gives money to pay for things that would have been paid anyway. The press production, which was forced due to the lockdown, is deflationary. It's ridiculous that this is all happening, but I don't see how this is in and of itself inflationary. If the dollar weakens, then we get inflation. 
How do you see that? I, it's not a global phenomena. It's inflation tends to be a local phenomena. So it depends where you are. So it doesn't matter if the dollar goes down for the Europeans. Uh, I mean, it does in bigger ways, but on this specific point, what matters is, are there more pieces of paper chasing fewer goods or fewer goods and services? That's, that's the issue. It's, it's the ratio, the relative ratio between the amount of pieces of paper uh, or digital money that's chasing the loaf of bread. And um, actually, there are two books that I think are remarkable on this subject. Um, uh, and I've got them here on these bookshelves somewhere. I'll pull them out. And again, I'll, I'll send them out so you can send it out in the notes that are well worth reading. I think they're both so old that they're in PDF form out on the internet. And you can pull them down. Um, one is called, um, oh, shoot, I'm flaking. I, I, I read them last about five years ago. Anyway, I have two books on inflation that I'll recommend, and, and I'll find that link and I'll send it back to you. All right, look, we've got, we got uh, just under 20 minutes left, so I'm going to get to some of the questions here because there's a lot of good ones coming. First one, um, completely different subject, but I think it's an interesting one. What do you think will be the most fundamental shift in China's economy and political movements because of the pandemic's effect? So I think they're going to accelerate something that had begun even before the pandemic, which is the Chinese manufacturing community was primarily manufacturing for the Chinese market and not for the international market. Even in the drone space that I'm in, you could see that they were starting to make drones that were not for export. Uh, they were starting to make drones where the instructions came primarily in Mandarin and there was a little bit of very bad English at the back. And I don't think that the Western world was ready to start trying to interpret Mandarin instructions on equipment. But it was an indicator, an early signal that China has decided, fine, if we have President Trump and the rest of the world is restraining the import of our product and limiting our access to the markets, we will focus on the domestic environment. So. This will intensify that enormously because the demand for Chinese products has collapsed. And the global supply chain is not just broken at one end, it's broken at both ends. It's a supply break and a demand break. So very hard to recover from that. So I think they relocalized, um, but then again, so does everybody else. The, the relocalization of production and creation of value is, is a huge theme going forward, which by the way, means we're gonna end up with a lot more global competition ultimately which is a good thing. Um, the second thing about the Chinese is that this health event just proves to them that they are right about the more authoritarian approach that they take and that the, the benefit to the whole is far greater than the interest of the individual. And so I think they will move further in the direction of not being very interested in individual freedoms and being very interested in the protection of the community. So you'll end up with, a, a, again, a sort of a, a machine where everybody moves in one direction. The government says, go here, and they all do. Now, you can get many benefits out of that. I personally think that stifles creativity. Uh, so I think it has its limits, but I think they've become more of a government-led bulwark than they were before. Um, so that's, I think, what happens to China. They just totally shift their orientation. 
uh, and they grow more slowly than before uh, and more domestically. It's a, it's a shallower growth curve than they had. Okay, I'm, I'm going to wrap a whole bunch of questions into, into one here. Um, people looking for your views on, on various things. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you four or five and you can just work your way through them. Uh, okay. First one we have to ask you about is the US elections, obviously. Um, do you think they get delayed? Does Trump lose? Does Trump beat Biden and Sanders? How do you think that plays out? Uh, what's your view on the bond market? Um, uh, and what's your view on uh, gold through all this? And also the economic data and the actual hit to the economy. Just if you can wrap all that into something. We've got, we've got enough time <laughs> okay. for, uh, for an answer. Maybe we can get to a few more. We'll see. Okay. Let me do the, the easy bits first. Uh, the bond market is not a good indicator of inflation expectations. People are not buying bonds based on their views on inflation. They're buying them because of balance sheet management and the fear factor that they perceive them to be safe, even if, uh, you know, by grant your measure, they might not be. It's a perception issue. It's an ask covering. You know, nobody gets fired for buying more bonds, even if the bonds blow up, ultimately. Um, gold, I think everybody who wanted to buy gold did buy it. Uh, it's really hard to buy it now. And the bigger question with gold is physically, where is it? Uh, and governments, when you get inflation, when you get um, bond markets becoming dysfunctional throughout history, governments have typically tried to create gold. And so uh, owning that gold in a place where it's beyond the reach of governments, this is the question. And that's harder to do now in the current environment than it was. So uh, I think there's a place for commodities um, more generally and for gold in a portfolio, but um, the, the buy gold scenario, I don't know that we're there yet. Especially because I, what I think is more likely to happen is we're gonna have a very messy bump period. There's gonna be a lot of fear uh, we have a lot of broken assets. They will get cleared. The only question is, is it going to be messy and slow or is it going to be quicker and more orderly? But, you know, markets will clear these assets at some point. And as that happens and we get the stories that companies are still going and, you know, innovation is still happening and people are going back to work, even if it's not everybody, then the psychology kicks in. And so this is my view is that it could end up like the 1920s where people go, you know what? I just survived a world war and a virus that took out 50 million people. You know what? I want to live a little. And I don't know what you guys are hearing from friends. You know, we're all doing our Zoom with wine sessions these days. But what I hear is people are like, you know what, I want to live. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to stop working so hard. I'm going to spend more time with my loved one. I'm going to find a boyfriend. I'm going to find a girlfriend. Like, there, I could see that we could do exactly what happened in the 20s, which is people just go nuts. I talked to someone yesterday um, who was a, a, a government official. So when this is done, I am spending to the nth degree right? Like I've been working so hard for so long. I want to like live. Uh, and that's a person who's not even earning a big salary. So look at the 1920s and see what happened because a lot of money was spent. It was the roaring 20s for a reason. And even people who didn't have money, oh, they saved up to go to a jazz club and spend it there when they could. Um, and so I could see that we rebound from this and we go through a euphoria again that frankly, um, Grant is going to give you a heart attack and you're going to be like, how is this possible? 
but I think it is because this is how humans are. They go through waves of terrible fear and elation, fear and elation. And that's, I think what, what we could, the, listen, the volatility of financial markets comes into our personal lives and we, we start to swing the way, you know, market prices were swinging a few years ago. It comes now into the way we lead our personal lives. I'll finish by saying election. Yes, there is a chance that the election is delayed. Um, I, uh, I'm spending a lot of time talking to people who are the world's leading experts on the coronavirus. Uh, not that I understand half of what they're saying, but I, I, for a variety of reasons, happen to know them and I'm listening carefully. And the bottom line is that we uh, could experience a second wave and a third wave of this thing. It would be typical for it to be uh, diminished in the summer heat months because heat and sunlight kills this virus. It goes into hiding and then it comes back out in the autumn in the West. And what we don't know is does it mutate into something more aggressive or less aggressive? And nobody in the medical community who knows what they're doing has any idea because we don't have any data. So we have to think about both scenarios. It could be both ways. If it's more aggressive, then you could easily see governments locking economies down again. China's already done this. They just had a little hotspot outbreak in the county called Jia um, in the Hubei province, and boom, lockdown. So I think rolling lockdowns are a real possibility. I don't think the pandemic lasts forever. You know, it's a period of time, but it's a lot longer than anybody anticipated potentially. So we have to really think about that. Now, what does it do to the election? Well, I've been talking to people particularly from the Midwest because everybody else only talks to people in New York and San Francisco and LA. And I personally, from my background in politics, think that that is a view, but it's not the view that anybody in politics focuses on. Anybody in politics knows that those parts of the country are gonna vote Democrat no matter what, and they're really most useful for fundraising purposes because nobody campaigns there because you already own the territory or you already definitely don't. But the middle is what you're fighting for. And in the middle, what I'm getting is that people are saying, yes, Trump was slow, no, I don't like him, but the economy's been good and he is more focused on the economy and all the alternatives are saying things that would not necessarily be great for the economy. And generally speaking, the Democrat potential nominees have all been uh, much further left, much more uh, bigger government, higher taxes, more regulation than we've seen before. And many people thought that President Obama was already further to the left than most of the Democrats. And now the party's moved even further to the left there. So the question is, are there enough people in the middle of the country who buy into that view? And I think the answer is in urban areas, there's a community that do, but in rural areas, it still leans Republican. And while they don't particularly like the way Trump says stuff, they prefer what he says, which is in general favorable to business. So I think this view that this virus definitely wipes out his chances of being reelected re is not right. Um, and the airtime that he's getting right now is helping with that. So a lot depends on what is the situation with stock market and the economy as we go into that election. That's, that is the question and the defining feature. But, you know, Bill Clinton told us that, you know, it's the markets.
stupid. That's what okay, it is. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and squeeze a couple more. And we got we got a few minutes left. Um, first one I would ask you is the, the social contract. You spent a lot of time talking and writing about the social contract. Um, so I'd love to hear your views on the impact that this has had and is likely to have on that. Whether you think it will actually stop the fraying that had already begun, or it will just exacerbate it. And secondly, another great question, someone who's asking about what's changed in your global perspective in the last few weeks and months. How, how has all this, which parts of your outlook have, have changed because of this? Uh, let me do the latter first. Um, I definitely did not anticipate the pandemic. Uh, and when it started, I did an interview and the panic was just beginning. Uh, it's when we were first starting to see the really terrible footage out of China, and I felt afraid to talk about the possibility that it could be something more serious and that I didn't know. I, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a doctor of economics. I deal with sick economies rather than sick people. And so I definitely did not understand that this was going to become a pandemic. So this has radically changed everything. Uh, I still think that there's so much money in the system and we've just added to that that we're going to find things float more than they should uh things survive more than they should so even though i'm telling you a lot of stuff is going to break there's a lot of stuff that isn't going to break as well uh, and so we're still going to have lots of opportunity from an investment point of view I think bottom fishing is going to become a, a full-time occupation for a lot of people. The Howard Marxes of this world are about to become gods. Um, you know, he runs one of the best bottom fishing firms. Uh, remind me, what's his company called? Howard Marks in California. You know who Oak I mean. Tree. Oak Tree. Yeah. Oak Tree. Oak Tree. Uh, you know, and a lot of people who are going to get fired from VC and private equity are going to suddenly show up as bottom fishing experts, right? We're going to see a big shift in the market that way. Um, and I think that pension funds and insurance companies are going to start managing their portfolios much more actively. They're not going to be following what the consultants say is, you know, the right thing to do for the next three years because there are too many bends and twists and turns and corners that they're going to get killed on uh, along the way. So we're going to find they're going to start behaving in ways that we haven't seen before. So all this creates very interesting opportunities. So I remain in the camp that I am looking forward to being in these markets. And I think there are going to be a lot of things to do. I am not of the opinion that we're going to wake up one morning and there is no economy. It's the 1930s. And, and I've recommended Amity Schley's book, uh, The Forgotten Man, as something that people should read because she makes the argument that the thing that caused the 1930s to be so devastating uh, was exactly what Ben Bernanke says is the thing that saved us in the 1930s. Bernanke says the government intervention is what saved the economy from being much worse. Her view is it was the government intervention that caused the economy to be so bad for so long because government started trying to control supply and price. And frankly, today, we could see a little bit of that. Already the British government has hinted at nationalizing companies like um, the railway. And I'm like, okay, well, you can nationalize it, but then you're going to have to run it. And what you're going to find out is it's a nightmare to run. 
And so you're going to privatize it because there won't be any choice. So those, there's a lot of opportunity in a world where governments nationalize, reprivatize. I mean, this is a rich environment for making money, but there's no simple recipe. This is going to require a huge amount of attention and focus and, and not buying into certainty. This is the most important thing. People have got to give up their certainty. We are in a deeply uncertain world. The most important thing you can do is to focus on preparedness for possibilities rather than trying to predict outcomes. Well, I'm not going to let you off without the social contract part of this because I'm trying yeah, to wrap yeah. up all the questions I've had about moral hazard and the social order. Let's just get how you think that this has affected that. Yeah, so the social contract is fundamentally about the relationship between uh, states and citizens, companies and customers uh, within communities. And the social contract has been under enormous pressure in recent years. Populism is uh, one of the results of that. I personally view it as the debt burden is so heavy, it bears down on the social fabric and it breaks the promises that hold the society together. Like the state says you can retire at 65 and then the state comes back and says, actually we're broke and maybe you can retire at like 83, you know, which frankly, we're going to get a lot of broken social contract in the current environment. Many promises will not come good. And therefore, people are going to start saying, wait a minute, is this the social contract that I want? Is this the right relationship between states and citizens? Uh, we were already having this question about, is it the right relationship between Google and Facebook and the citizens that, you know, they have all your data, they're using it uh, in ways that you might not be aware of. And so now everybody's an activist. Uh, I was on a WhatsApp call the other day with a whole bunch of really smart people who've never worked on this question before, and they were literally trying to write up a new social contract. I was like, okay, guys, if you're going to do it, at least go back and, like, you know, read the, the, the papers about how the U.S. Constitution was created, because there is a history, right? We have tried certain roads before that we know don't work. Don't reinvent the wheel from scratch. But people are trying to reinvent the wheel from scratch because the wheel is not serving them. Now, is this a good thing? Well, maybe it is. Maybe this is a wonderful moment in history where we can begin to rethink what is the correct social contract in any given country. And every country has a different one. Um, and I, I think it's actually quite exciting. And the way young people today are going to want that social contract rewritten is very different from how my generation might have wanted that contract to be written. So we're going to have a wonderfully... Um, diverse and deep ongoing discussion and perhaps some action about what the new social contract is going to look like. And that is crucial for investors to understand. You can no longer just invest money in markets because markets depend, they rest on the social contract. So now you have to really look at the societal aspects. That is part of your job as an investor now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to shut my mouth because I want to ask you more questions, but we, we run out of time. Uh, Pippa, look, I, okay. I can't thank you enough for, for doing this for me. As always, it's, it's so much fun talking to you, and I'm delighted that so many other people get the chance to listen to this conversation. And my apologies to everybody in attendance for not getting to as many questions as I could. I tried to wrap some up. That's on me. Um, but uh, look, Pip, thanks. I'll let you get back to your day and uh, enjoy thank London. You. Stay safe, stay healthy, say hi to Penny and your dad for me. Uh, and I'll I talk will. To you soon. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks so All much. Right, take care. Bye.